Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. Turkey, stuffing, sweet potatoes, cranberry sauce, Macy's parade, football, family. What do you think of? A long day with family. But which holiday do you think of? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, that's right. For 16-year-olds Alfred Chestnut, Ransom Watkins, and Andrew Stewart, their Thanksgiving in 1983 was much different than the one I just described. Instead of turkey, family, and football, they got woken up by police, handcuffed, and hauled off to jail. On Thanksgiving? Thanksgiving morning. 35 Thanksgivings would come and go before the holiday might have a slightly different meaning for these three men. November 18, 1983, Lionel Richie's All Night Long is number one on the Billboard Hot 100. Future number one NBA draft pick Patrick Ewing was entering his junior season at Georgetown. That year, they'd go 34-3 and and win the NCAA championship. Three of Ewing's four seasons at Georgetown would see the team in the NCAA tournament's championship game. Georgetown basketball was absolutely on fire. Sounds like... You might ask yourself, well, what does that have to do with anything? I thought this was a true crime podcast. So on November 18th, 1983, just before Thanksgiving that year, a young man named DeWitt Duckett had just finished science class at Harlem Park Junior High in Baltimore, Maryland. It was a little after one o'clock, and with a couple friends, DeWitt made his way down the hall, where another young man came up behind him, wielding a pistol and demanding DeWitt's Georgetown starter jacket. Starter jackets were the thing. Now, this guy came up and demanded DeWitt's starter jacket. DeWitt tried to get the jacket off, and a struggle followed. And ultimately, DeWitt was shot in the neck. The shooter made off with his jacket. But despite being shot in the neck, DeWitt made it down a floor and to the cafeteria where he found the unit principal for the school. The principal helped him to an administrative suite where he eventually collapsed. Medics arrived, and they took him to Baltimore Shock Trauma, where after about two hours, he died as a result of his injuries. DeWitt Duckett was 14 years old. He was murdered for his starter jacket. This is a crime that's just completely senseless. It's absolutely awful. But somehow this story only manages to get worse. Well, how can it get worse than a kid in school, minding his business, getting shot over a daggone jacket? I'm glad you asked, and we're going to answer that question. Alfred Chestnut, Ransom Watkins, and Andrew Stewart had previously attended Harlem Park Junior High. But by this time in 1983, they had moved on to high school. On November 18, 1983, they went back to their old school for a visit. They were all 16 years old at the time. The trio got to the school around lunchtime. They visited a few classrooms and were, as young men can often be, a little disruptive. Ultimately, they were told to leave, and they did. When they went outside, though, they hung out at the basketball court until the school either resource or security officer, so this is somebody who's like a police officer but not exactly, had returned from lunch, and this was around 12.45 in the afternoon. Now, the officers saw them hanging around the basketball court, and after about a 10-minute lecture on the importance of staying in school and out of trouble, the officer escorted the young men off school property and watched them as they walked off into the distance to make sure that they had really left this time. By all accounts, nothing in any of this ever says they were doing anything wrong. Well, they've been skipping school to go visit a school. Unless, maybe, did they not have school that day? That's a good point. What I mean is, it wasn't like they went into the school for some nefarious purpose. They were basically just hanging out. They were a little disruptive in the sense that the teachers are trying to teach class, and here they are, not part of the class. Well, if that's the worst thing a kid ever does, then God bless them. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So now, the officer went back into the school just before 1 o'clock, and he said that he secured all of the entrances to the school on the way in. 
And if you're asking, what is this group of young guys, having been escorted completely off school property by an officer prior to 1 p.m., have to do with DeWitt, who was shot after 1 p.m.? That's a good question. The answer is, Alfred Chestnut, Ransom Watkins, and Andrew Stewart were charged, tried, and convicted of murdering DeWitt Duckett. Oh, wow. So he did end up dying. That's horrible. And these three guys that were off the property before this happened, I mean, did they come back or something? That's a great question. So let's look at the investigation. Now, remember, it's 1983. You've already alluded to it, right? A shooting inside a school anytime is a big deal. But this particular shooting, local press reported it was the first time that a student had been fatally shot in one of Baltimore's public schools. So you can imagine there was a lot of pressure on the police to figure out who pulled the trigger and to quickly apprehend that person. What I know about Baltimore, I believe it was like 1972 was the last time before the 80s that there was even a a shooting of any kind inside of a school. So it was very rare. And Baltimore is like your favorite place, right? Well, absolutely. That's home. I'm a Baltimorean. (laughs) The Baltimore Police Department identified potential witnesses, uh, as you would expect them to, and they learned from teachers that there had been several former students in the building that day. That included the three that we've talked about, Chestnut, Watkins, and Stewart. There were a couple others as well. The day following the shooting, Baltimore police had begun to identify Chestnut, Watkins, and Stewart as suspects. Officers began showing photos of these three young men to the witnesses that they knew were around the crime scene at the time. Two witnesses had said that police showed them groups of photos. Two groups of photos. The first set contained pictures of Chestnut, Watkins, and Stewart. Now, the second set of photos was a completely different group with other folks. Police showed these witnesses the set of photos of Chestnut and his friends twice. So this first group that included these guys, they were shown that group of photos two different times. But these witnesses insisted that they couldn't identify any of the guys in the photos. Now, remember, that's the day after the shooting takes place. On November 23rd, so about five days out, Baltimore Police Department was told that another student, this is like a fourth student, may have witnessed the incident. So police showed this possible witness the group of photos containing Chestnut and his friends, and the student picked them out. Police prepared a statement for the student to sign, and the student signed it without even reading it. Now, after this identification, Baltimore police had patrol officers pick up the other three student witnesses. That's how I'm going to refer to them, because they were students at the time. And they were young students, because remember, this is a junior high school. So they pick up the other student witnesses, which include the two who have already said they couldn't ID anybody in any of the groups of photos, even though they viewed the group that had Chestnut, Watkins, and Stewart twice. These young folks were then driven by patrol down to homicide at the Baltimore Police Department. According to testimony at trial and more recent statements, none of these minors' parents were present or even made aware that the police were going to be interviewing these students in this second interview. Despite the fact that two out of three had previously not identified Chestnut, Watkins, and Stewart, all three witnesses, now in the homicide unit at Baltimore Police Department, picked these young men during the interview as being involved in the shooting. Then around 1 a.m. on November 24th, Thanksgiving Day, 1983, Baltimore police descended on all three homes and arrested Chestnut, Watkins, and Stewart for the murder of DeWitt Duckett. Police had also obtained search warrants, and when they searched Chestnut's house, they found a Georgetown starter jacket, just like the one DeWitt was murdered for, in his closet. Well, that's interesting. It is, it is indeed. All three men pled not guilty and exercised their right to a jury trial. During the trial, there was no dispute that Chestnut and his friends were at the junior high school that day, and even shortly before the shooting took place. 
The state's evidence was primarily from the four student witnesses and the lead detective from Baltimore Police Department Homicide. There are several teachers and a resource officer who testified that the young men were in or at the school building that afternoon, which they didn't dispute. Four students testified that Chestnut, Watkins, and Stewart were the ones who took DeWitt's jacket and shot him. Finally, there was the Georgetown starter jacket, the whole reason DeWitt was murdered, and one of those had been recovered from Chestnut's closet at his home. Let's look at what the student witnesses said at trial. I'm going to refer to them by number, student number one, two, three, four, just to keep it straight. Student four testified that Chestnut was the shooter, that Watkins held the victim, and that Stewart took DeWitt's starter jacket. Student number one testified that he knew Chestnut, Watkins, and Stewart. About an hour after the shooting, student one made a statement to the Baltimore Police Department saying that they were walking in the hallway with DeWitt when the shooter ran up on the victim. Student one testified that there were two other people down the hallway, but only the shooter came up on DeWitt. They also testified that the Baltimore Police Department brought them in on the 23rd, and officers were mad because they claimed to know that student one knew who committed the crime because other people saw what happened. And at this point, student one ID'd Chestnut and his friends. On the stand, student number one claimed that he didn't tell Baltimore Police Department officers the truth an hour after the shooting, but he did at his interview on the 23rd. Oh my. Just like the first student, student number two testified that he had given a statement to the police shortly after the shooting. In that statement, he said there was only one suspect and described what the shooter had been wearing, light pants and a gray hoodie. Student number two confirmed that he did not identify any of the defendants in his initial interview with police when they presented the photos of Chestnut, Watkins, and Stewart. Instead, student number two, just like student number one, identified the three during the interview on November 23rd and again in court. Now, student number three is the most interesting out of these student witnesses. This witness also gave a statement to the Baltimore Police Department about an hour after the shooting. At that point, the student said that they had never seen the shooter before. When shown a group of photos, including Chestnut and his friends, student number three did not identify any of them as the shooter. However, officers came back the next day and showed another set of photos. In this set, student number three picked out a boy named Michael Willis, but said that Willis didn't have anything to do with the shooting. So he identified that he knew him and he recognized him, but that he didn't have anything to do with the shooting. This detail was never disclosed to the defense in discovery. Interestingly, officers came back to student number three's house again a second time this same evening and showed the student a group of photos with Chestnut and his friends. Again, student number three made no identification of the suspected shooters. However, on November 23rd, when he was brought into Baltimore Police Department homicide unit, student number three ID'd the three young men as being the perpetrators. This student also claimed that Chestnut threatened them if they said anything that they would get hurt. Student number three testified that Chestnut was the shooter, Watkins held the victim, and Stewart got the victim's jacket. So he went from not being able to identify anybody involved in the shooting to now, five days later, descriptive details of how these three were involved. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. And you see a pattern with all of these witnesses, except for the fourth witness who came forward. They're the one who initially out the gate said, oh yeah, it's these guys that prompted the police to follow back up on the other three student witnesses who changed their statements, essentially. So to summarize, the state's theory of trial was that Chestnut pulled the trigger while his two friends helped him to handle DeWitt and to take DeWitt's starter jacket. During a search of Chestnut's home, remember, police recovered a Georgetown starter jacket from his closet. Now, the eyewitness stuff is a bit wonky, for sure, but what about this jacket that nobody seems to dispute was the reason DeWitt Duckett was murdered? At trial, Chestnut's mother testified that she had purchased her son the Georgetown starter jacket and another starter jacket at a men's shop just a few weeks prior. 
Now, let me stop there. If you're thinking, okay, cool, but a lot of good mothers would get on a stand and say anything to protect their baby, that's fair. I may have thought that as well at first. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure our mom would probably lie under oath. Yeah, she probably wouldn't be the first mother to commit a crime to save her child. Right, but in this case, mama is coming with the receipts. Literally. She still had the receipt from when she purchased the jacket, which she had showed detectives when they executed the search warrant. More than that, she went and got an authentication letter from the store to verify her claim. Oh, damn, Mama is on it. Yeah, she's not playing around. And in case you have any doubts still, at the trial, the employee who was working at the time that Chestnut's mother purchased the jacket testified that he sold them to her and also authenticated the receipt and the letter from the store. Now, in its closing argument, the state dismissed the importance of Alfred Chestnut's mother purchasing him the exact same jacket that they were claiming that had been stolen. Instead, they argued that starter jackets were hot and they were expensive. So it made sense that Chestnut and his friends stole it for somebody else and then just had to get rid of it. Okay. Regarding all the discrepancies in the eyewitness testimony, the state said the kids were just nervous and scared. Stewart's attorney made it a point to note that there was another suspect in all of this. Michael Willis. Remember the one that the student witness three picked him out but said, oh, he wasn't involved, but noted it to the police? Well, the state rejected this in its closing and explicitly said Willis was not a suspect. I want you to just remember that. Okay. The parties gave their closings and the jury was charged or given its instructions of law from the judge. On May 28, 1984, Memorial Day, the closings ended at 6.20 that evening. Defense counsel asked the judge to advise the jury whether they would get dinner and whether they'd be sequestered to a hotel, but both requests were denied. Now, the jury began deliberating at 6.29 on Memorial Day. I'm a little shocked that it's Memorial Day and there's even court. <laughs> I guess things are just different back then. No holidays for the jury. Much less, it's Memorial Day, 6.29. I'm sure these jurors... They want to get the home to that barbecue, man. The grill. Let me get some cheeseburgers and hot dogs. That's what I'm thinking. So they started deliberating at 6.29. Exactly three hours later, at 9.29, the jury rendered their verdict. Guilty. Each young man was convicted of felony murder. 16 years old, arrested on Thanksgiving morning, convicted on Memorial Day. The judge sentenced each to serve life sentences. Okay, well, I mean, if they did the crime, then maybe that's the appropriate punishment. But there seem to be some questions here about if they did the crime. Yeah, certainly there's some questions. From day one, Alfred Chestnut, Ransom Watkins, and Andrew Stewart have maintained that they had no involvement in the murder of DeWitt Duckett. Surely, though, plenty of guilty folks claim they're innocent, right? After being sentenced, the three men would challenge their convictions without luck for decades, until 2019. In November 2019, nearly 36 years after the arrests in this case, the Conviction Integrity Unit for the Office of the State's Attorney for Baltimore City issued a report in this case. What in the world is a Conviction Integrity Unit? So this is kind of a more recent, I don't want to say phenomenon, but it's a, a more recent trend that we're seeing generally in prosecutors' offices. Is this like that Chicago torture review unit or whatever it was? <laughs> I mean, I guess maybe something along those lines. But generally what we see in these, you're seeing them in bigger cities. You see them in New York. Philadelphia has one that's made a lot of news. And of course, we got this one in Baltimore. Essentially, within the prosecutor's office, there will be a unit that's tasked with reviewing cases that might have questionable convictions. They're going to do some screening work, but then they're also going to do some investigative work. And they're going to look into claims where a defendant says, hey, I was convicted, but I'm innocent. And here's what happened. And here's why you should really take a hard look at my case. Okay, hold on. 
I'm all for taking a second look at a case or having a second set of eyes investigate or a separate unit or whatever. But why don't we do that before we put someone in jail for life? Oh man, that would be great. Now, the report in this case was written by the chief of the Conviction Integrity Unit in Baltimore. A lot of the details that I'm talking about today are from this report, which again, is coming from the state. It's literally out of the prosecutor's office. So if you're inclined to think that this is some smoke and mirrors technicality kind of thing, that's just not the case. Prosecutor's offices, even CIUs, they're not in the business of creating anarchy or taking unnecessary shots at their work. They're not looking to just let people out of prison. They're reviewing these cases in only the smallest percentage of cases. Do they make it to a point where a recommendation is given to reverse or to vacate a conviction? It's exceedingly rare. Also, you can check out the show notes. We have a link to the CIU's report in this case. If you want to read the whole thing, it's about 50 pages and it's well worth the read. Now, this report found evidence that all four student witnesses were coerced into making pre-arrest identifications of Chestnut, Watkins, and Stewart, and that their trial testimony was extensively coached to ensure that their testimony matched. In support, the CIU report notes the witnesses could not provide any details beyond a few specific facts that they were coached to say. If you review the report in detail, you'll see that during the grand jury proceeding, they were asked numerous questions that they frankly couldn't answer, that if you were there and if you saw what you said you saw, you'd be able to answer. There were lots of holes in this. However, these four witnesses all managed to have this aligned story, and there's a reason for that. Now, what's more, all four of these witnesses have recanted their trial testimony. One of the student witnesses has gone on record about everything that's happened. In a New Yorker article, Ron Bishop recounts what happened to his friend DeWitt on November 18, 1983. Ron was 14 at the time. He was with DeWitt leaving that science class when somebody put a gun in his face and then turned the gun on DeWitt and eventually shot DeWitt in the back of the neck. The gunman had ordered DeWitt to give up his starter jacket. He tried to get the jacket off. Bishop took off from the scene of this armed robbery only to hear the gunshot go off behind him as he ran down the hallway. Okay, but Bishop knew who was pointing that gun at DeWitt's neck because he was just there, right? He's there, and Bishop is one of the student witnesses that we talked about earlier. Okay, I see. Bishop watched his friend stumble into the school's cafeteria, bleeding out, dying. Having been so close to the shooter, Bishop was a primary witness. He probably had a better view of the gunman than anybody else that day. Police met with him shortly after the shooting, and he told them that he thought the shooter looked familiar, but he wasn't sure what his name was. This is where the teacher's reports about Chestnut, Watkins, and Stewart being in the building that day really came into play. See, when the teachers let the officers know that they had been there, this gave the officers names and pictures to work with. The lead detective, Donald Kincaid, was no rookie cop. The homicide detective had been around for quite a while, and he took a group of photos, the ones that included Chestnut and his friends, to show Bishop. Bishop recognized the three because they went to the same elementary school and, you know, they knew each other from the neighborhood, but he didn't identify them as being involved in the shooting. After a 13-year-old student witness, who later it became clear was in a position that would have been nearly impossible to see the identity of the shooter, I'm talking down a hallway, around a bend, with a grate or a gate, like the kind of separates hallways and metal. So all this stuff in the way terrible angle, really far away, basically impossible. So she's the one who came forward and claimed that Chestnut, Watkins, and Stewart were involved. And after that, detectives put the pressure on the actual witnesses who were closest to the shooting, including Bishop, to identify these young men as being involved in the crime. According to Bishop, the detective's demeanor completely changed at this point. Instead of coming to his house and talking with his parents present as he had before, Bishop and the other boys had been picked up and brought in without their parents' consent down to the homicide unit. 
There at Homicide, Bishop says the detective told him he better tell them who did it or he could be charged with accessory to murder. Oh, come on. And so, as he pointed to photos, the detective offered some commentary. Bishop pointed at Chestnut, who he knew from the neighborhood, and the detective apparently said, Oh, he had the gun, right? And Bishop knew that was who the detective wanted him to ID as the killer. So afraid of prison, and with a homicide detective who he says seemed frustrated and angry, a ninth grade bishop ID'd Chestnut, Watkins, and Stewart as being involved in the shooting. As the trial near, Bishop says that the prosecutor held a meeting with all four student witnesses, where they essentially rehearsed what to say, and without saying as much, made it clear that there was a correct narrative and an incorrect narrative. Bishop stuck to the script. At trial, his testimony contributed to the convictions in this case, and it began to eat him alive. He thought about the three men in prison. It weighed on him. He actually failed the 10th grade. Wow, that sucks. Remember Michael Willis? Yeah, yeah. So, not long after DeWitt was murdered, Bishop ran into Willis, and Willis said something that just seemed odd. According to Bishop, Willis told him, If anyone tries to take your jacket, let me know. I'll take care of them for you. Now, Bishop says he barely knew Willis, and he thought it was odd, and at first he just thought not a whole lot of it, but as time went on, he started to wonder maybe Willis was sending a message. Was Willis the boy in the hoodie who shot DeWitt? Bishop wondered, and he recalls seeing Willis wearing a Georgetown starter jacket shortly after the murder. And as time went on, Bishop became more and more convinced that Willis was the one who actually shot DeWitt. Now, despite going to college, graduating with a bachelor's in psychology, and landing a great job as a counselor in a hospital in Baltimore, Bishop felt intense guilt for what he described as sending three innocent men to prison for the rest of their lives. I can imagine. Bishop wasn't the only one who had reason to suspect Willis. Chestnut had been requesting copies of the reports and police files from his case for years. Remember, these guys were convicted in 1984. In 2018, he finally received some of the investigative reports from the days right after DeWitt's murder. And there was a name in a report co-written by Detective Kincaid that really stood out. Can you guess who it was? Uh, Michael Willis. You would be correct. The report indicated that a young lady had told police she heard Willis was at the junior high when police responded to DeWitt's murder. And that he had a gun and threw it down and ran away with some other boys. Her brother told police that he had heard Willis wore DeWitt's starter jacket to his skating rink the same night as the shooting. That is cold. Alfred Chestnut believed that he finally had what he needed. He wrote a five-page letter to Marilyn Mosby, Baltimore State's attorney at the time, pleading his innocence and asking for help. These cases were referred to the chief of Baltimore CIU who got the trial transcripts and started really digging into the cases. Part of that digging was interviewing the student witnesses, including Bishop. Bishop went to CIU and met with the folks investigating the case. He sat in the office and said, There was one shooter. It was Michael Willis. The three other student witnesses were interviewed as well, and they all gave statements that didn't match their trial testimony. Remember the young lady who first came forward and had ID Chestnut, Watkins, and Stewart? Yes. She said that she'd not even seen the shooting. And I want to point out, she was the youngest of all these student witnesses. She was only 13 years old at the time. And she was the one that was down the hall around the corner behind the gate and supposedly had seen it yeah exactly and, and that, now she's saying yeah i really didn't see anything exactly right but it was supposedly her coming forward and pointing to chestnut Watkins and stewart that had caused the police to really focus on them and to bring these other witnesses who didn't id them back around and for whatever reason eventually to id them now that fall the chief of the ciu apparently set a personal deadline to see these three men released from prison before thanksgiving in 2019 she worked the case, and on November 22nd, Marilyn Mosby actually visited the three men to deliver good news in person. A few days later, all three were in a courtroom in Baltimore. The judge offered the men an apology and ordered that they be released, 
three days before Thanksgiving. 36 years in prison, 108 years collectively, is the longest period of incarceration in American history for a single case. Alfred Chestnut, Ransom Watkins, and Andrew Stewart were locked up as 16-year-old teenagers and emerged from prison as 52-year-old men. I don't want to say that's their entire life, but my gosh, that's marriage and kids and college or learning a skill and a career. Wow. that's not... So, okay, here's a weird question I've always had. When whatever happens that you get in front of a judge that says, yeah, something went wrong here and you're getting out of prison, is that like you're out right this minute? Or is that like I'm ordering Department of Corrections to get you checked out? Yeah, so it varies a little bit, I would say, case by case, procedure by procedure and jurisdiction by jurisdiction. And I think it can go both ways. So sometimes they'll have everything taken care of so that once the judge says, hey, you're free, you walk out of that courtroom and you're actually free. Some places, sometimes there can be this okay, you know, your conviction's thrown out and it's ordered vacated and you're to be released. Just as a housekeeping matter, you have to go back to whatever, a jail or whatever facility to be essentially like processed out. And so really it just all boils down to whether that's done on the back end or the front end. And I think some of that comes down to, my guess is in a case like this, they knew this was all just a technicality to come in front of the judge. So they might've had all that squared away ahead of time. Plus it's a big city, everything's right there in other jurisdictions or maybe where you're not sure which way the judge is going to rule, then I would say it's probably going to be more likely that you, you might get ordered released, but then you have to go back and just be processed out. But I would say in almost all circumstances where something like this happens, where there's a finding that you're being exonerated like these guys were, it's going to be fairly quick. I'd say the more public or the more press that's around it and the more that it's like everything's known ahead of time, it's probably going to happen in court. If you're appearing in front of the court and the court really makes the decision there because it's contentious, because that's something I should point out here is there really wasn't a debate. It wasn't contentious because you had the CIU, which is the prosecutor's office, right, who jointly filed this petition with the lawyers for Chestnut, Watkins and Stewart which I believe was a combination of a law firm, um, the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project. I think the Baltimore Innocence Project was in on it too. Essentially, you had both sides coming together and saying, hey, judge, you're the one who really has the final say in this, but we all agree that these convictions need to be thrown out. So that's a little bit different scenario than some scenarios where maybe you have somebody who's actually innocent, but the prosecutor's office, and this happens all the time, for whatever reason, they're not in agreement. So they're fighting it, and then the defense puts up a strong case and the judge agrees with the defense. So that in that kind of an instance, they probably wouldn't get let out of the courtroom right then and there. Most likely, they might have to go back and get processed out because you don't know what the judge is going to decide until you, the judge decides, until they see the evidence. This isn't always the ending in these situations, though, is it? I feel like I've heard about cases where something new has come to light or witnesses recant their testimony and judges will say, look, the trial was fair. The witnesses said what they said. The jury found based on that evidence and there's nothing new to be considered here. Am I wrong? You're right. It is. Ultimately, it's up to the court. So if both sides agree, hey, they should be let out and they come before the judge, ultimately, the judge is the one who has to agree with that. So if the judge disagrees, if the judge feels like, no, you guys are wrong, the judge could say, no, I'm denying it. Because from a procedural standpoint, what's happened here is the parties have filed a petition. They're petitioning the court for the release. And I think in this instance, it was actually to exonerate them, to find that they were actually innocent, and then to dismiss the indictments that had been filed against them so that the case would be completely done and over. In this case, it worked, and it sounds like it was absolutely the right call. Those petitions aren't always successful. And the judge can say for any reason they want, that's nice, but I'm not granting it. Yeah, absolutely. And I know the petitions that I've been involved in haven't always gone. For instance, the McDLT is still not back. So 
that's tough. Yeah, again, just to be clear, these men were not let out on a technicality or some defense attorney's crafty argument about some legal nuance. The state's attorney in the CIU report recommended to, quote, move the court to grant a joint writ of actual innocence petition and order a new trial, as well as dismissing the indictments against Chestnut, Watkins, and Stewart. The three men filed a lawsuit against Detective Kincaid and the Baltimore Police Department. And that case is Chestnut et al. v. Kincaid et al., 20 CV 02342. In a January 23 report from Baltimore City Law Department titled Significant Litigation Report, which I'll note is 18 pages long, it indicates the discovery is underway, and in the description it says that, quote, the plaintiffs contend that their convictions arose from the improper investigative tactics of BPD members, which targeted plaintiffs in contravention of the evidence. Now, I have no idea what Kincaid did or didn't do, and I'm not somebody who wants to be party to a lawsuit, so I'm not trying to speak on that. I'm just letting you know that that's what has been alleged, and based on that New Yorker article with Bishop where he talks about his experience with the investigators in the case, you know, one has to wonder. Detective Kincaid said that no witnesses were ever coerced and that he didn't do anything other than seek the truth. Michael Willis was shot and killed in Baltimore in October 2002. So if that is the person who did the shooting, which seems to be what some of the witnesses have indicated, there won't be any trial against Michael Willis. All right, well, I didn't hear from any of the witnesses a convincing argument that Willis did it. Bishop had that cryptic conversation with Willis, and then later when he went to meet with the CIU, he said that Willis did it, but I didn't hear how he reached that conclusion because he was the one that the gun had been pointed at and that... He He's the best witness in terms of... Yeah, he was like right there. there. He saw the person with the gun and he didn't recognize the person. Not saying it was or wasn't. That's just his position. And I think there's some other folks who seem to think that's the case. But again, you know, he was never tried for it. So we don't know. And if this case seizes anything, you can be tried of something, convicted, and that might not mean a whole lot either. And lose 36 years of three men's lives. They didn't even get to graduate high school. These guys didn't even get to be adults. They were 16 when they went in the pen. There's a picture of these guys whenever they are being moved around right after they've been arrested. And to look at that picture is honestly, it's just heartbreaking. Yeah, they're kids. Are you familiar with Elizabeth Loftus? Name sounds familiar, but I don't know what you're talking about. Elizabeth Loftus is a professor and a researcher who has produced a lot of studies and understanding of how memory works. So memory doesn't work like a video recorder where we see something and it records the sights and sounds. And then anytime we want that memory, we recall it and just press play on it. It doesn't work like that. Memories aren't really recalled. They're reconstructed. And each time a memory is reconstructed, Loftus has found, there can be things that change about it. Memory is not a hard drive. It's malleable. So consequences of that are that you can believe what you're saying. You can believe it is truly what happened, and yet it absolutely is not. The more an alternative version of events or other details are brought in front of you, the more likely those are to get compounded in the memory that you will later reconstruct. Now, in this case, it it doesn't sound like it was bad memory on the part of the students. Maybe the first girl that got the thing started about these three other boys saying that they were there, they did it. That sounds to me like you have a teen or a preteen jumping to a conclusion. 
not crazy, but the police should sort that out and go, okay, we've got these three kids that don't attend this school here. We need to check that out. I feel like that should have been over the minute they found that those boys had left at one o'clock and you have a security guy convinced that they're gone and they're not in the building. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I just, for the girl that comes forward as a witness, one of the things that I thought whenever I was reading through this initially was how much of it was, oh, she came forward and had this evidence and how much of it was they found somebody who was willing to say what they wanted to hear. And I don't know that. I wasn't there, but... That could have even gone from they're talking to the kids who were in that general area. They asked this girl, you know, anything strange happened today? And it comes up that these three boys were here. Did you see them do this? Do you think they did it? Is it possible they could have done it? It could turn into a statement that sounds more like a fact mm-hmm. than a guess or a conclusion. Or and again, whatever. remember, my recollection is that they wrote the statement for her. She signed it and she said she didn't even actually read it. So Yeah, that's, that's really handy. It uh, seems like that's not the way we should be putting people in prison for life. Yeah, and then that was kind of the what they used to go after these other three witnesses who should have been good witnesses. But again, to your point, you think about it, even Bishop, you make a really good point. He goes from having a gun in his face as a kid, as a child in a junior high school, and he says as soon as the gun is on DeWitt and he's got the chance, he takes off because, I mean, he had a gun in his face. I don't blame him. But so in that moment, how good is your memory really? Like, how well did you take in what this person looks like? Absolutely. Victims will often report the gun that they saw as being huge because that's what it seemed like at the time. When a gun's pointing at you, it looks a hell of a lot bigger than it is. Speaking from experience. And that can really cloud other minor details at that point. Your uh, fight or flight survival instincts kick in. And right now, all you see is death via that cold steel. Yeah, for sure. And then it's, okay, and what color were his eyes? And what kind of hair did he have under the hoodie? I mean, yeah, just... For all I know, it could have been a robot, you know? Right, yeah, and that's a really good point. So to the extent that Bishop believes that it's this person or that person, you know, that's his belief, and I don't, I don't know, I wasn't there, but it's understandable if things are a little mixed up. Yeah, look, I don't blame these kids at all. These are kids. And like you said, intentionally or innocently, the police are going in a direction asking questions, and they have to be smart enough and careful enough to solicit truth. Sometimes police go into an investigation having already determined what the outcome is and are looking for confirmation Mm -hmm. of what they already believe not looking to see where the investigation goes and what the truth actually is. Mm-hmm. And we certainly are seeing this more and more in these older cases. But back to the eyewitness testimony, I don't hold a whole lot of faith in eyewitness testimony. First of all, everybody lies. And secondly, our memories suck. They're nothing like what we think they are. Yeah, there's this false sense that we have great memories when reality is we don't. And if you are hearing that and you disagree, just Google. There's plenty of stuff out there. You know, one of them is there's this an image with, oh, I don't know, maybe nine or 12 or 15 different images that appear to show the front or the obverse of a penny. And the question is, which one is actually the way that a penny is depicted? How many times have you seen a penny over the course of your lifetime? More times than you can count. If you're mm-hmm. in the U.S. with us, if you're across the pond or somewhere else, a, I don't know. A loony or a toonie or something like that. How many times you looked at a penny? Well, what is written on the front of a penny? Can you tell me? You've seen it a gajillion times. Can you remember what's on the front of there? And then go look at the penny and see. Which president is it? Which way is he facing? Yeah, there's lots of things like that that you think, oh, yeah, I've seen that more times than I can count. But doesn't mean that it's in there. 
you know, if you look at this, there's a way you could spin the description of this case to say, well, shoot, there were four eyewitnesses mm -hmm. that identified these three people. What else more do you need to convict them? Well, and frankly, that's how it went at trial, right? The, right? the jury took three hours to convict these kids of a murder, and I'm sure that's how they felt. Well, we got these four witnesses who said they did it, so what else do we need? And you have the defense saying, well, wait a minute, these identifications aren't legit. Well, what else is a defense attorney going to say? If they're going to plead not guilty, they got to argue something. The jury, maybe they just looked at, well, they're reaching for straws. But this is why it's important to not just look at the sum of the, the numbers. Well, we have four eyewitnesses that saw them do it. So mm. it's four to one, they're guilty. Wait a minute, let's break down each one of those four. And that's where you find out that uh, none of those witness statements holds up. And these guys lost 108 years of their lives. Yeah. In 2020, the Maryland Board of Public Works approved an $8.7 million payout as compensation to Chestnut, Watkins, and Stewart, which breaks down to roughly $2.9 million each. And that number is just shy of 36 years multiplied by the median household income in Maryland at the time the payout occurred. So I think that's generally how they got at that number. But in listening to and reading about their reintegration into society, Bob said it earlier, right? They missed out on all these birthdays and cookouts and funerals. And what they've described is coming back to family that it is their family, but in some ways, so much is lost. The connection is lost. The time is lost. You just can't replace that. Well, sure, when they went in the pen, they probably had grandparents, parents brothers and sisters, maybe some nieces and nephews. Now I, the grandparents are almost certainly gone. Some of the parents probably as well. So yeah, a lot of the family, they knew when they went in, that family isn't around anymore. Now there's a new family. And of course, they haven't been able to build any friendships in 36 years. Yeah. Now throughout the case, the three men have managed to stay in contact and they've stayed friends with each other, which I think is pretty remarkable. That really is. And it's a good thing they got going coming out because they all have that shared experience and they're all facing the same thing together, which could only be more difficult doing it alone. Yeah. As far as the money goes, I bet that all three of them would say they would much rather have their life reset to November 1983 than to have any of that money. No. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I don't even think that's a question. Finally, remember Bishop, the witness who was featured in the New Yorker article? The author of that article gave a letter that Bishop had written to Chestnut, Watkins, and Stewart in 2021. So in person. Now, I think it was one of the three men, I believe it was Stewart, actually was a kind of part of this meeting via Zoom. He wasn't physically there. He couldn't be there in person, but so he was there on a some sort of video conferencing platform. Now, the letter was written by Bishop, and it was an apology to the three men for his part in their conviction. According to the National Registry of Exonerations website, the letter brought tears to Watkins' eyes. After spending a lot of time in lockup thinking about why those witnesses said what they said, how could they do that, Watkins said, for me, this is everything. Sometimes in life, that's all you want, to recognize that they messed up and to apologize. Stewart added that he thought Bishop and the other witnesses were the worst people for a long time. But the letter showed the sorrow, the remorse that Bishop had carried around for 36 years too. Stewart concluded, if you talk to him, tell him I appreciate that and I accept his apology. Chestnut chimed in, me too. Be pretty cool if those guys, you know, could have gotten together. Yeah, and maybe at some point they will, because I'm sure if I'm Bishop, I'm thinking, man, these guys probably like, they don't even want to look at me. I was curious about that because it would certainly be understandable if all three of those gentlemen just wanted revenge on everybody, on these right? witnesses. Yeah. 
Yeah. I don't hold the witnesses nearly as responsible as the investigators and prosecutors that pushed forward. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. The prosecutor's job is not to get a conviction. The prosecutor's job is to seek justice. And the reality is when you convict somebody who is not responsible for a crime, there's a double injustice because not only have you convicted an innocent person, but you've allowed the person who actually committed the crime to walk free, which is no justice at all. Amen. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode. Ingredients, cow byproduct. <laughs> cool. Some things you just don't want.